Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, reminds us that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We use this as our Old Testament reading today because it prepares us for a man whose hope was deferred and whose heart was sickened by it. A man we find on the pages of the 8th chapter of Luke, verses 40 to 42 and 49 to 56. Luke chapter 8, 40 to 42 and 49 to 56. And as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And here we have a paragraph of yet another miracle that Jesus performs, which takes time away from Jairus and his daughter, and we pick up with his story at verse 49. While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, Your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now, They were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given her to eat. Her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Amen. May God in his great fatherly tenderness spare us from ever suffering the fate of hearts that are made callous, that are made hard and lifeless by years of mere academic familiarity with the gospel. May his Holy Spirit keep fanning the flame he first ignited in the heart of every believer, the flame of sheer childlike wonder at these words and works of Jesus. This ever-growing wonder at his infinite greatness, his infinite sweetness as Savior. 
It's part and parcel of being truly reformed men and women. To be reformed in our doctrine involves our becoming progressively transformed in every facet of our being. Biblical doctrine may be the firewood God uses in the furnace of your mind, but it warms the whole person. It warms the hopes and the aspirations and the affections no less than the intellect. Beloved, with the ministry of Jesus, we discover that the glorious kingdom of God, for which all humanity had already been longing for 4,000 years or more, this glorious kingdom is at hand. It's here. This kingdom isn't just some far-off dream. It's no longer someone's prophetic vision of the future. It's right here. It's right now. It's among us. It's printed across the last 2,000 pages of human history. This is absolutely wonderful. It's wonderful. Do the divine authority and grace that are harnessed together in these clear historical demonstrations of God's kingdom and his power and his glory, do they affect you? Certainly as propositional truth, the gospel stirs the mind. It stirs human curiosity as it administers a good rousing shake to our presuppositions about the world and our life in it. But do these solemn testimonies of eyewitnesses stir your affections for Jesus? Do these things thrill your heart as perhaps they once did? Here on virtually every page of the gospel, life-giving, life-changing miracles take place at the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the good of his people. And as we read, we find an amazing thing. These signs and wonders signifying the coming of, a, of the kingdom, they appear not only in a steady stream of grace. Occasionally, we see them actually stacked up, one upon another, just as they are in today's passage. The miracles intertwine. For the unspeakable kindness of releasing one poor defenseless man of the living hell he'd been so long forced to bear within his own soul, Jesus, that Gerasene demoniac's champion, Jesus the Mighty One, Jesus is handed his hat and shown to the door. Verse 37 lays out the amazing situation for us. When the Gerasenes, living there on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, saw for themselves how the demon-possessed man, this man who was so well known to them, so notoriously violent, so feared, when they saw he'd been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they got into the boat and returned. It's a sobering fact, but true. The Lord Jesus Christ forces his good and gracious gifts on no one. On this fleeting late January day of grace, he freely offers you himself as Savior, but he doesn't impose himself. 
On that coming day, when he returns in final judgment, he will impose himself. On that coming day, every eye will see him, every knee bow to him, but that last great day isn't yet here. In these last days and moments of gospel grace, where he's not wanted, where his wondrous gifts of grace and the soul's liberation aren't welcome, Why should he stay? Why should he? Consequently, when the Gerasenes, fearful of his heavenly power and grace, revoked his welcome, he got into the boat and returned. Simple as that. He returned to Capernaum from whence he'd come. And look at his return as he sets his foot back on the shore of his adopted hometown of Capernaum, clearly those who'd come to know him best also came to love him best. Time and again, these people of Capernaum have tasted the goodness of the Lord. And so here they are on the shore the next day, waiting for him, longing for him, waiting and longing for his return ever since his departure, just the night before, waiting for him in the spirit of the 130th Psalm. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Watching for him, like the bride singing the song of songs, the bride, you remember, who on her bed by night sought him but found him not. Who then, not finding him, rose and went about the city and the streets and in the squares, seeking the one her soul loves, asking other watchers, Have you seen him? Have you seen him? In just this way, the people of Capernaum are straining their eyes, scanning the southeastern horizon of the lake for that familiar fishing boat carrying their Jesus home to them. That crowd thronging the north shore, soon to be thronging Jesus himself, they represent a mountain of human needs. And you can be sure a lot goes on in such a crowd that passes unnoticed that passes unrecorded by those present at the time. It's just too busy a scene to capture everything that goes on, too noisy to hear everything that's said, too tightly packed to see everything that goes on in such a crowd. But two people, especially eager to see Jesus, emerge from the crowd. Two very different people whose most noteworthy point of similarity is that Jesus, and he alone, is able to help them. Their stories overlap in time and place, but otherwise they're very different stories of very different people coming to the same fountain of grace. The story of Jairus and his daughter will consider today, and the concurrent story of the needy woman will consider next week. Now there is, both then and now, a certain personal bearing and decorum we naturally expect of our elders and other church officers. Sober-minded, for instance. Self-controlled respectable, managing his own household well, and so on. That's the standard for officers in God's house, and a good standard it is. 
So it must have raised quite a stir when a public figure like Jairus, an elder we'd call him, a ruler of the synagogue there in Capernaum, he works his way to the center of the crowd where Jesus is, he falls at Jesus' feet, and he begs him to come to his house. Begs him. Now, ever since Jesus left Capernaum on the previous day, this man's been in the grip of a terrible dilemma. My daughter lies home in bed, dying, suffering, and dying. I've got to be at her bedside. I have to be with her. I have to be there to support her. But she's dying. She's slipping away. And beyond making her as comfortable as I can, there is absolutely nothing I can do about it. I know that Jesus works miracles of healing on behalf of desperately needy people every day. Some of them in my own synagogue. I've seen it happen with my own eyes. But Jesus left town yesterday. So here's the dilemma. I must be at her bedside, available to her. But I've also got to be down at the dock waiting for his return so I can snag him right off the boat and bring him back to her. I don't know his travel itinerary. I don't know his plans. Will he be back today? Will he be back tomorrow? Will he be back next week or next month? I don't know. It's the dilemma of having to be in two places at the same time, rendering a father's tender, loving home care to a dying daughter and simultaneously being out tracking down the only real help there is. And completely uncertain of where Jesus is at the moment or when he'll be back. What a joy it must have been to him then to see the disciples' boat sail into view that morning. It hadn't been 24 hours since Jesus left Capernaum, but... Under the circumstances, it must have seemed to be that many days. So Jairus presses his way to the front, falls before Jesus, explains his need for help, explains his need for speed. And without delay, Jesus intends to go with him. But there they are stuck in all this incredible traffic traffic of their own making because the crowd's pressing in on Jesus from every angle on every side. At last Jairus has the cure. Now he faces the problem of getting the cure to the patient and the clock's ticking. And they're getting nowhere fast. And then suddenly someone else in the crowd calls attention to herself. Someone else has a need that just can't be ignored. Someone else brings to a standstill this agonizingly slow progress toward the home of Jairus and his little 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, as she lay at death's door. Now, if you're thinking, 
Jairus, just man up and deal with it. You know that you've got the girl's mom at home with her. You know there's family and friends available to keep watch round the girl's bedside. Even if she dies, she won't die alone. If you're thinking that Jairus should just man up and deal with the situation, then I'm certain you've never been the father of a 12-year-old girl. Fathers know you've got to be there to help. The bedside of your gravely ill child is the only place for you. It's the only place to be. It's your place of duty. And if that's true of sick children generally, I suspect it's doubly true of daughters. I don't mean to minimize the importance of moms at a time like this. Children absolutely need their moms, but in their last extremity, Daughters also need to be able to draw on the strength that comes from having dad there. The crowd came to this agonizing standstill around this woman Jesus healed, this woman he's just about to send away in peace. They hadn't even gotten started again toward the sick girl's home because Jesus hadn't quite finished up his visit with his last patient. While he was still speaking to her, Someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Now, as an army chaplain charged with the occasional duty of helping notify a soldier's next of kin of their loved one's death, Discharging this duty in my Class A uniform there on the family's front doorstep, usually at what seemed to be the middle of the darkest night of the year. We who serve together on the notification team are trained not to hem and haw. As terrible as the moment is, just introduce yourself and then come right to the point. Be gentle but direct, they train us. Sir, ma'am, the Secretary of the Army regrets to inform you that your son or daughter, husband or wife, and so on with the message. Well, this news now reaching Jairus from his daughter's bedside certainly was direct, but it was hardly gentle, was it? In fact, it's hard to imagine how such terrible news could be brought gently to a man who's stuck in this agonizing situation. It's been one delay after another, but... This messenger doesn't seem to be the ideal choice for conveying the news, does he? You're late. She's dead. Stop bothering the teacher. She's dead. And Daddy wasn't there. And now Daddy's supposed to get on with his life. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Can't you see the man's busy? People... And circumstances can be so cruel. But never Jesus. Never Jesus. Jesus overhears the hard news and he speaks words to Jairus that the man may have thought he hadn't heard quite right. What he heard was, Do not fear Only believe and she will be well. 
But that can't be right, can it? Now, we, as just the last of a hundred generations of fallen, dying men, men who are born and raised and growing old and dying in a fallen, dying world, we might be forgiven the surprise of hearing such a promise coming on the news of a little girl's death. She will be well. We're inclined to think instead, no, Jesus, you've got it wrong. I was too late. She's dead. She won't be made well again. She'll never grow up. She'll never marry. She'll never experience the joys of having a family of her own. She'll never become the mother of my grandchildren. Her death ends it all. She won't be well again ever. The rude messenger had said, Don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus keeps Jairus and the crowd moving forward toward the synagogue ruler's home and the corpse of his little girl. From long exposure to matters of life and death, we are plagued, aren't we, with this stubborn idea that death is the one problem for which there is no solution. We have no answer for it when it strikes. We think that death always wins, we always lose, and that's the end of the story. The glory of this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, friends, is its plain, straightforward assurance, grounded in the historical details of his own life and ministry, his own death and resurrection. It's assurance that death is not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story for that widow of Nain and her very dead son back in chapter 7. It's not the end of the story for Jairus and his very dead daughter here in chapter 8. In fact, it's not the end of the story for anyone covenantally bound by faith to this great God and Savior Jesus. And you have loved ones too. I know you do. You have husbands and wives and parents and even children maybe who have died in Christ. Died trusting Him. Died trusting His power, His promises. And I fully recognize the hurdle our faith has to clear whenever death visits our homes and takes away our loved ones. It seems, after all, to be such an immovable, brute fact that brings with it such lasting grief. Oh, beloved, I dare not offer you Jonathan's private opinion on this or any matter. Private opinions of mere men carry no weight, and pulpits aren't meant for the dissemination of private opinions anyway. But the solemn testimony of Scripture is clear, it's compelling, and it not once but repeatedly announces in no uncertain terms Christ Jesus is victor over death and the grave. And when he speaks the word, Talitha kum, Hepais Egere, child arise. When he speaks the word, the child arises. 
She gets up. She arises to new life, not because it seems naturally likely to us that she will, but simply on the absolute divine authority of him who speaks. That proverb we read earlier in its first half reminds us of something both Jairus and we know already. We know it all too well. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I don't need to tell you how those words of the messenger reaching Jairus' ears must have sickened his heart. His hope, so long deferred, so long delayed, first by Jesus' absence and then by the traffic jam occasioned by his presence once again, Jesus' hope deferred had now become, as far as he was concerned, hope denied. But a synagogue ruler, even in the extremity of his grief, a synagogue ruler might well remember some of the comforts the God of Israel had promised them. One of these promises certainly applied to such men as he was at that very moment. It's the promise of a coming servant of the Lord. Of him Isaiah had written in his 42nd chapter, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Exactly so was Jairus that moment he learned of his daughter's death. A bruised reed. A faintly burning wick. Crushed and failing. And Christ sustains him. Christ sustains him. First, with a word of encouragement, and then by a culling of the crowd as they approach the house, because clearly what that grieving household needs at that moment isn't a hundred people packed into the place shoulder to shoulder, watching, listening, talking, stirring, making more demands of him. No, Jesus culls the crowd. He trims it way down to a few people who need to be there the moment the little dead girl rises again. They include her two parents, of course, and with them three competent witnesses by whom every fact might be later confirmed. Everyone else, everyone from the laughing, jeering, paid mourners and flutists to the majority of his own disciples, all of them are asked to please wait outside because the servant of the Lord will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Until the dawning of the day of full gospel proclamation, that coming day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and beyond, until that day, this miracle is going to be kept as low-key as such a thing can possibly be kept. So out goes the crowd. He then takes the dead little girl's dead little hand and incurs by that mere touch her uncleanness under the law. And in place of that death and uncleanness, 
imparts the radiant vitality of his own life and then raising his voice calls her, not just speaks to her, but calls her. Using the very words her parents might have used to wake her every morning. They're not magical words. They're very ordinary words. Talitha Kumi Hepai Segere Little girl, time to get up. And once again, time fails me. You know the rest of the story. You know the kindness and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things great and small. From his cosmic victory over death itself right down to the tender accommodation of a hungry little girl's need for breakfast. What I want to leave with you today is the conviction that in these Gospels we have multiple real-life demonstrations of the kingdom and the power and the glory of our covenant God and King who is now come in the flesh. His presence and ministry among us changes everything we ever thought we knew. We have multiple eyewitnesses confirming these things that absent those witnesses we'd have to say are simply incredible. Absent multiple eyewitnesses to these things already accomplished among us, it seems incredible that the day is coming when all who are in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth. It seems incredible that the day is coming when this mortal puts on immortality, that the day is coming when death is finally completely swallowed up in victory. It is incredible, but friends, it is absolutely true. And it's sealed with the testimony of eyewitnesses. His triumph is already started. It's already underway. So thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.